fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to F Triple G B T. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology and makes it a reality. We do that. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Hey, Dan. Great to be here as always. Very excited for this show. You know, this is one of the times we're doing an entire series at once. This is going to be challenging, but I think we're up for it. Yeah, I think so. But luckily, we've got a lot of historical knowledge here, Denon. I think you and I, we go back way far when it comes to Marvel stuff. So I think we can handle it. And I know another guy who can handle any workload, and that is our enigmatic engineer, Ben Seepser. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week? This week, I'm at the headquarters of the GRC, where we're about to vote on the settlement. But I hear some yelling from outside. Holy cow. Well, things can really pop off really quickly when you get to those votes, and a lot of people's lives are on the line there, Ben. So be careful there while we talk about the Winter Soldier and the Falcon, also known as the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Now, this is a great series, a Marvel series, that I was really excited about, guys, because, number one, I love the Winter Soldier. I think the Falcon's coming to his own. This is a great storyline, and I'm curious what you guys thought. Denon, where were you with the series when you saw it? I actually really enjoyed it, um, Dan. I I don't know why. I love the personal backstory, the side stories with the two of them. Um, I could have used even a little more of that maybe. I love the whole um, boat and the sister and, and the, I guess their nephews. I'm, I'm, I'm always... I'm always slow on those genetic relationships, um, but sure, you know it sure. was it was fun to see this superhero fix up a boat. Um, it was just that was really cool to me, and watch Bucky, you know, work through his issues. That was fun too. Well, now Ben, I know you were you're really invested in all this Marvel stuff, uh, and you've got usually have a very interesting angle on this. What did you see when you saw this? Well, first I gotta agree with Denon on the this old boat segment you know I saw a meme about that with the uh, this old house font but this old boat and I really thought it was real for a second before I realized it was Bucky and uh, uh, Falcon there but in general I just love this taking of a long form analysis of the the political fallout that would occur uh, after all that's gone on in the Marvel universe you know it, it is a messy world there and I appreciate a series finally addressing how messy it really would be I do think one of its weaknesses, Dan, is a problem I often have with superhero movies. That there wasn't really, they didn't commit to a bad guy, right? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, mm -hmm. Ben gets it right. The messiness of the world was the bad guy. But then they tried to bring in, I don't know, I, I lost track, somewhere like four other bad guys, depending how you look at it. And, and none of them quite clicked for me. So I loved, you know, Bucky and Sam. I loved the idea of dealing with the messiness after the blip. I just felt the bad guys, I don't know, I just, I wasn't into them emotionally, Dan. Well, look, that that makes sense to me, Den, and, and I know to be emotionally invested is very important. And I got to tell you, I, I agree with both of you guys, and I didn't really think about the messiness of the world so much. But what I liked about this series is it kind of discussed the succession of Captain America, right? Like, unlike the other superheroes, I mean, you guys know that I had problems with Into the Multiverse, and part of it was you can't replace Spider-Man, which is somebody else. But I think you can, in fact, replace Captain America. It's almost like the presidency. Uh, and so I thought that was really interesting, but... I got to tell you, with the messy world and the way things were going, I really think, although Sam Wilson is the correct choice for a good Captain America, 
I think the more interesting choice is Bucky, especially given all of his uh, emotional issues, let's say. But also, he's got the super soldier serum, uh, and, and so I thought he would have been a much, a much for the long form, much more interesting choice. You go there with him a little bit, you realize, even with that cybernetic arm, he's probably throwing that shield a little too hard. Uh, you know, there's a chance that he could go rogue, and then you realize Sam Wilson's the right guy. Let's give it to the Falcon. I, I was, I thought they missed an opportunity there, guys. I don't know what you think about that. That's an interesting comment um, there, Dan. You know, in terms of the journey of the Shield through the different characters, um, I, I I agree with you that it would have been an interesting plot and discussion. I just think it shows the you know whole um, sort of insight that Steve Rogers had right from the beginning that Sam was the right choice to be his successor. That's why he gave him the shield. So he had this interesting moment of someone picking their successor, um, using all of his intelligence and knowledge of leadership, knowing that Bucky, um, with all his skills, was really you know a better wingman, if I might um, <laughs> throw that out there as sure, a reference, sure. <laughs> um, and, and should support Sam in this, in this journey um, rather than be the prime character. So I thought... I thought it showed Steve Rogers' intelligence in going straight to Sam. Though, like you said, it would have been an interesting back and forth had Bucky tried it. I really like how this demonstrates Captain America's superpower is not just his super soldier fighting, but it's also his super judgment of character. He is able, through his strong moral and ethical guidelines, to see that Sam Wilson is also has that same strength of character to carry on the name much better than anyone else that he has encountered in the modern world. And what I love about this, Dan, if they went this way, is it would have helped. I mean, Bucky shows a great sort of self-realization in the movie that he isn't the right choice to be the Captain America and that Sam is. So you could have had that happen even, I think, in a more rich way, as you pointed out, if he first had the shield and then came to Sam, kind of struggling with, yeah, Steve did give it to Sam, Steve was right. It would have been interesting to see that. Well, they do it in the comic book. That's more in line with the way the comic book works. You know, so like had Sam said, I don't want to do it, he gives up the shield. Then Bucky says, well, I think someone really needs to hold the mantle. And then he takes it kind of by force. And then you realize that that's not really the way that it's supposed to go. Uh, you know, I, I think they could have done it. But who am I to rewrite a Marvel movie, right? Um, but but I think what's interesting there is the, the cool thing that Sam as the Falcon brings to this is his Falcon technology, right? So obviously, you know, Super Soldier Serum and Winter Soldier's arm. Arm. Those are major plot points in this, but we've covered those before. The Super Soldier Serum, and you can look at our The Boys Compound V episode, or even Venom Symbiotes if you want to see how super strength can happen. And the Doc Ock episode, that's a perfect one to look at if you want to see how, um, you know, Bucky's arm works. But I want to talk about the Falcon's technology, because we've talked about similar, in, in our conventions, panels, and things like that, you know, we've talked about similar uh, technology, the flying technology. And some Sometimes it gets pulled off and sometimes it doesn't go very well, right? So the vulture in the comic books, you know, the Spider-Man villain is a little dopey, but you know, the vulture in the movie is pretty cool. Uh, the Falcon in the comic books is kind of, uh, you know, borderline, but I think they do a great job with his technology in this, those wings actually, he, they're very versatile guys. I mean, I thought that was kind of the most impressive part of this. I love the wings. I also just love the whole package, Dan, of the combination of sort of jet and wings and how they work together. But I'm thinking I like the Wakanda version even better. It's interesting to compare the pre and post um, in this series and what they do with that. That just shows how the Wakandans are better at technology than 
us uh, feeble American technologists. But I, I also really liked how much it really tried to be like a real bird's wings. I love that they showed the flexibility and the all the different pieces moving independently, just like a real bird would have. You know, you don't have this kind of fixed, uh, rigid structure like uh, we see on like airplanes or even the vulture's wings in the in the Spider-Man movie. We really see a kind of living, breathing machine to power uh, Falcon's flight. Well, I do think, you know, you mentioned that, Ben, and I'm wondering, though, just I'm going to pick a little bit at that word power of the flight. I feel like what's interesting here is they leverage the jet really well to allow slightly smaller wings than you would need to actually power flight because his bones are still solid. But you're right. The flexibility allows them to really use them as incredible airfoils and really control, change, um, manage his flight and be so um, kind of what is the right word? I'm um, quick and rapid and aerodynamic, as it were. Um, so I agree with you completely. I just think it's also really important that they combine it with that. Well, I don't know. Is it jet or rocket power? I always leave that to you, Ben. I just use the words interchangeably and don't worry about it. Yeah, I, I well, I think it's, you know, my first guess would be it's some sort of, you know, repulsor tech a la uh, Iron Man. But once it's Wakandan, I mean, I'm guessing there's just some vibranium jet engine-y thing kind of in there, like uh, off of the their flying uh, cars. Well, the one thing I do like, just to quickly mention that Wakanda thing, the Wakandans do make a lot of technology better. But as we saw in this, what I thought was interesting is they kind of put in a failsafe, right? Like they were able to disarm uh, Bucky's new really cool Wakandan cybernetic arm. And I like that. But in some ways, it makes you not trust them because they know how to turn off their technologies. You got to be careful. And I think anyone who's smart puts in a failsafe, because I know I would, because I wouldn't want my weapon to be used against me either. Um, but the one question I want to ask about the Falcon technology is, would he be able able to fly you know I mean are these suited would he get the lift um, does he require the power source because remember these wings are very strong I mean they're they're bulletproof they're helicopter proof uh, I mean would that actually work the wings are really interesting and and Denon was correct to correct me there that they are not providing the power of the flight that's what the rockets for and I like that this rocket you know it doesn't take a lot of thrust to per move a person around right you only need like two three hundred pounds and then these wings can provide the lift and all of the control surfaces to fly them around I would like also how it's kind of a throwback to back to the Wright brothers in that the wings are now these flexible moving wings like on the original right flyer rather than what we have now, these fixed surfaces uh, like ailerons and elevators on modern day planes. Yeah, Dan, I really think it comes down to, as Ben said, all these flexible surfaces in the shape. I'm, I'm willing to grant flight here. Um, they're smart people. You know, it's hard to estimate exactly what you would want to do. It really does come down, I think, ultimately to the shape of the wings. And as you said, the material you make them out of. So a strength to weight ratio. You're not going to build them out of steel. Um, that's going to be way too heavy and you're just going to fall. Um, there may be, believe it or not, some sort of internal foam structure um, to make them strong enough but light enough. Well, I believe it, Denon. I believe it. There's, there's just no questioning that. A anyone watching our show or listening to the podcast knows there's probably a foam somewhere in here. Um, particularly when you go to Wakanda-level technology, you've got vibranium available to you, um, which just changes the game completely. Um, but, yeah, I think I think there's some... You know, you always have to look at the detailed flight sequences. Some of them are probably kind of fantastical, but the general concept, 
I think is I think we're okay with that, Dan. Okay. Well, the the one other key part here, right? So if we've got if the flying functionality is in order, the one thing that I noticed is that these wings you kind of alluded to it earlier, Ben, uh, is that th- these wings kind of have a mind of their own in some ways, or at the very least, they respond to Sam's request and commands very quickly, almost at the speed of human reflex. So I wonder, is this connected to a central nervous system? How could he possibly be controlling it like that, especially because we never see him touch anything? His hands and feet are, you know, doing other things, usually kicking the crap out of bad guys. So what do you think about that? Ben, I'm going to ask you first. Yeah, I think there's got to be some sort of control interface beyond just him leaning and, you know, looking up and looking down. I mean, you could you could maybe into it where somebody wanted to go with just those commands of, you know, shifting your body weight. But there's also things like how does he tell it to like wrap around him to uh, protect him from a fall, a helicopter that's about to fall on him. You know, there, there's got to be some sort of brain interface there to get all of those directions and have the wings act so quickly to his commands. And there's clearly a brain interface because he controls the little mini thing that comes off the suit and flies around. And I do think one thing we see in the Marvel Universe, this sort of neural link to computers, I mean, Iron Man's link to Jarvis, right, is just a very common um, technology in this world, in this universe. So I'm not surprised at all that he has direct brain control of the suit. After all, as we've talked in many of our episodes, Dan, that's a growing field is direct, you know, brain robotic linking. So it's even probably of, of all the technology in the suit, controlling it with brain signals is probably the closest to reality that we have now. You know, it's really interesting that he has to voice command Red Wing often, but the wings kind of act like an extension of himself. You'd think you could uh, get Red Wing to uh, be responding to his brain signals, too. <laughs> that makes sense. Well, Red Wing's also kind of his buddy. It's like his electronic buddy in some ways, you know. Uh, and, and I didn't think that I would really believe that the Falcon suit was cooler than the shield, but in some ways it kind of is. But the shield does some amazing things. You know, the Captain America shield, we haven't really covered that in an episode before, but, you know, one of the things that I kind of want to get to is its bounciness. You know, this metal shield acts like a, you know, like a super high bouncy ball, you know, whatever they call super balls. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's really how this would work or how we could get it to work. I mean, the physics behind this are very odd, Denon. Well, when you think about the way they describe it, I mean, I think of vibranium as the ultimate elastic material. Elastic materials are springs, basically. When you push on a spring, All the energy is converted to potential energy. It's not lost. The spring is compressed. And then the spring bounces back and turns all that energy back into some other form of kinetic energy and throws it out. Um, You know, we we normally think of metal as being a little more um, suffering. It absorbs the energy in different ways, whether it's plastic deformation or or cracking or breaking. Um, And I think vibranium is just the ultimate elastic metal Um, absorbing energy, all sorts of energy. So when it hits things, that's basically a physical energy, a kinetic energy. It absorbs it and then springy and bounces off of it. So it it really is core to the way they describe it as physics. And then making a metal that's way more elastic than ones we're used to, that's probably the trick here. So that's really the metallurgy or the properties that go on to vibranium. It's really interesting because the shield can both absorb energy perfectly but also and sometimes it reflects it and sometimes it doesn't you know we see uh cap take like a tank round with this thing and all the energy just kind of dissipates 
but then he'll throw it at a very soft-bodied bad guy, and it'll bounce back miraculously. It's a very interesting combination of both uh, damp perfect dampening and perfect elastic rebound. Well, what I wonder, Ben, is the things we see as perfect dampening um, are maybe just um, an elastic rebound, but it's really good at changing the form of the energy. So instead of sending it back into the dangerous object that hit it, because that might go to civilians, right? You're right, right? A bullet or something bouncing off it like crazy. Who knows who what it's going to kill? But maybe it's able to turn that, say, all perfectly into sound energy or some other form that perfectly conserves the energy and the shield acts elastically, but converts the energy, say, from the bullet and then sends it into the air. Um, that may be a possibility. Now, how it would know how to do that? Totally different question, because it is a passive, not a passive, not a computerized device. So, Dan, a lot of interesting questions here. I think you're right. The shield is fascinating. I think we need to look at Black Panther a little bit because we see the Black Panther suit, which is also a vibranium device. It's able to absorb energy and redirect it as the Black Panther controls. So maybe there's a little bit of AI in the shield that uh, is doing something there. It's possible. I mean, if you look at, especially in the comic book as well, there, there he had an AI, Captain America did have an AI device in a like a homing mechanism, um, but he took that off because that the perfectly balanced nature of it needs to be preserved. So I don't know if there's anything in the vibranium for the movie for the the cinematic universe. But one thing is interesting that I think we need to keep in mind here is that Steve Rogers, the, the key to the shield is its strength. It's its ability to ricochet and, you know, the strength at which he throws it as well and the accuracy. And a lot of that, especially in the comic book, is explained by that super soldier serum, which not only enhances his physical dexterity, strength, but also his cognitive abilities. And he's able to make those instantaneous calculations as to where the shield is going and how and, and where it's going to end up. And that's usually on his arm. Now, Sam Wilson, which I thought was interesting, is he does not take that super soldier serum. So I wonder, I mean, definitely his throwing arm is going to be lighter. And no matter how smart he is, he's not able to make those instantaneous calculations. So I wonder if going forward, if the shield is going to be less of an of a offensive weapon, or they're just going to forget all that and let him use it however he wants to anyway. Well, I really wonder if this is partly the suit. Could the suit be helping him, Ben? I'm, I'm curious about that. I mean, I could certainly imagine the Wakandans have made some adjustments to the suit to have it, you know, convene with the shield so that it can, you know, give back some of these powers that you lose by not being a super soldier. I mean, we also see, though, that he kind of mess. he doesn't really get messed up. But, you know, Batroc is able to stop the shield by throwing a chair at it. So, you know, clearly Wilson uh, Wilson has not fully mastered the shield as much as uh, Steve Rogers had. And Dan, your question of him targeting it, he wears really cool glasses. This is obvious from the mm. background right now on your screen. And that could have tech in it that really helps with the shield, right? So maybe he just uses more tech and has more backup than Steve Rogers needed. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think that's exactly what is going on there. Um, because the interesting part, you know, you made me think about this, Ben, is, you know, he does intercept that shield. You got to remember, like, once Captain America, whoever it is, throws that shield, it's in the air. I mean, it can be intercepted. I mean, it's just like a quarterback throwing a ball. I mean, it can get intercepted. It cannot reach its target. Uh, you know, anything can happen, which is where the shield is most susceptible uh, to, to, you know, getting hit off target. Um, but one of the things here, guys, before we get too far along, we have 
have to talk about one of the something another thing that we haven't really discussed but has played a major role in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and that's the blip where Thanos eliminates half the population randomly and then they come back that causes a lot of problems in this particular series them coming back and you know five years later which is kind of an interesting problem to have which I found this from a storyline perspective to be really intriguing but I think the physics of this are also uh, you know kind of kind of mind-numbing in a way well the biggest thing for me Dan was this idea that you know you have a choice presumably when you snap which is to send the whole world back five years and just start over which clearly people like Iron Man you know he was a little worried because he had gotten married and had a kid you lose something else when you do that or do you bring the people back to the moment where you are but I'm wondering if the person snapping couldn't have been a little more creative in their request because you're just making them, apparently they chose to just make them appear exactly as they were when they disappeared. Um, and depending how time works in this universe, that may not be your only choice. Maybe you can sort of project them forward five years. And I'm wondering what difference mm. that might have. But you're exactly right, Dan. This is a very interesting twist on effectively time travel. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to think about uh, just all of a sudden being five years in the future and how much has changed. You know, we, we look at our own lives and see how much has changed in the past four or five years. And it's it's pretty mind boggling. And to imagine half of the world going through something like this, it's it's really quite an intense thing. And to think about the engineering and logistics that would go to one shrinking the world down to half of its population all of a sudden you know you have all of these all of this machinery that assumes a certain amount of people and now you got to turn off half of it and then all of a sudden everybody comes back and now you need to fill those jobs again you need to get all that machinery back online you now have to feed twice as much twice as many people all at once this is a logistical and planning and engineering nightmare that i don't know how you put all that together and keep the world going. Well, I think that there's an, there's two things here that I think are, are kind of interesting is that five-year number is the perfect amount of time to be awkward enough to cause a huge problem, um, but not simple enough to fix easily, you know? I mean, if they were 100 years in the future, it'd be totally different because not only society would have moved on and everyone would have forgotten them. And one or two years, you haven't really, you know, it, you're still getting over the events of of the, you know, the the war and on planet Earth and all that stuff. So five years is, is a great little number to make it this perfectly awkward. And also, you know, this is a question for you, Denon. If five, you know, well, not five, I don't know what the exact, exact number is, but it's definitely 50% of the of human beings, of living humans or whatever it is, the population, I don't know how they descri describe population, but that number of people disappearing instantaneously, that's a lot of mass and energy that is leaving a system. Does that have any effects, you know, globally, uh, that number of people just disappearing? Well, well, clearly here you're relying on the power of the Infinity Stones because normally, if you're you're right, Dan. If you're destroying that much mass, you're generating essentially un un uncountable numbers of nuclear bombs, right? And that energy wipes out the other half of the people, plus all the animals and all the leaves and all the trees. So what we see is interesting, right? They turn to dust first and float away. So um, there's definitely a reduction in mass in that. But the question is, is the mass disappearing? Are you just vaporizing and it's turning into extra gas in the atmosphere? Or are you really turning 
mass into energy and which requires the power stones to do something different with that energy. Um, I thought you were going in a different direction with this, Dan. You're right. The, the mass loss has to be accounted for by the way the power stones work. But I was thinking about the fact that if you're losing 50% of the billions of people we have on the earth, that number is so large, everyone's going to think, oh, it's uniformly spread out. But that's not how randomness works. Randomness has large fluctuations, right? If you start flipping a coin, you're going to get long streaks of heads and tails. It's not going to be head, tail, head, tail, head, tail. So you're going to have some countries and some places and populations that lose way more than half their people and some that lose a lot less. And that's only going to add to the challenges and complexity of losing that many people. It was funny when you were mentioning a big number, that's where I thought you were going. So um, I'll throw that question out to the group as I answered your question on energy. Well, I do, I do want to point out something there, then, because to, to, to say the nuclear bomb, you're assuming that the mass is converted to energy. And I'm saying it's just disappearing completely. And the second part of that, you know, when you look at a casino, um, over the course of however long someone is sitting at a casino, even if the odds are 50%, you're going to lose 50% of the time. You're going to win 50% of the time. So with a large number like, you know, 3.5 billion, I feel like the numbers would actually even out over time to be relatively statistically normalized. But Ben, you may have a better insight on that. The statistics of that would be really interesting. I like that Denon brought up this this kind of issue of what would happen if, you know, some villages might lose almost all of their inhabitants where other villages may not lose anybody. I mean, statistically speaking, that's pretty likely when you're talking about uh, 50% tests on just huge, huge amounts of uh, the population all over the world. Uh, I think you would actually have lots of these uh, unevenness, unless part of Thanos's snap was to spread the randomness evenly on, you know, across like voting precincts or something, so that it it does affect every community equally. Yeah, that that's a good point, Ben. It it, it all goes to the design of how Thanos defines fifty percent and what size you're looking at. Because you're right, Dan. Right, you do. You know, statistics says if I do a long enough coin flip, it is half heads and half tails. My point is they're not distributed every other head, tail, head, tail. So any section you take out of that is a weird, you know, combination of heads and tails that's not perfectly 50-50. And that's the population problem. And it's a challenge we run into, for instance, when we look at diseases and things like that. You get pockets. For instance, cancer rates, this happens all the time. You get pockets of high cancer rates that turn out to just be statistically random and there wasn't any extra cause of cancer in that region and that's the real challenge um, when you look at the math is to figure that all out so it would be fascinating how even more complicated that makes this um, from a social point of view because it's it's all over the map well you bring up an interesting point there and i'm going to slip in a nice little uh shameless plug here for fascinating nouns i just did an episode about the crimes that built san francisco and their surrounding areas and in the 70s in santa cruz there were three serial killers operating at the exact same time which is you know i can't do the statistical math on that but for a for a brief period it was called the murder capital of the world i mean that's kind of the statistical anomalies i believe you're talking about here Dennett. uh but you know before we finish here i want to talk about two 
really cool pieces of technology that we see briefly, but I really like them. And they're both, Sharon Carter is responsible for both of them. And the first is this incredibly accurate, seems to be light powered face mask. And we talked about face masks in our Scooby-Doo episode, but this one seems to be made out of cloth. And I want to quickly point out, friend of the show, uh, John Borders sent me a great article a couple weeks ago about this, this cloth that Chinese scientists developed that's electrically powered and is flexible and is like an LED television set and you can project light. I mean, it's got 500, uh, half a million pixels um, per cloth, which I think is like a foot by a foot, which is quite a few pixels. I love this. Uh, I don't know what you thought about this, Denon. Oh, I, I love it as well. Look, we're going into a world where clothing is going to become completely programmable. My favorite thing, you know, you just buy one shirt. Um, and you get to wear it all the time, and it's 8 million different shirts, no matter how you program it. Imagine the impact on the T-shirt world. Like, you could just program. You wake up, and you say, what saying do I want on my T-shirt? And you program it in for the morning. Um, this idea of developing flexible, wearable, polymer-based technology that's also LEDs. Um, I'm not surprised you got that link. It's been a dream of scientists and material scientists, and we're smart people. I knew we'd break it at some point. Um, it's interesting, though, to think about it as a mask because it has an added feature, and that's voice activation, Dan. Mm -hmm. um, it, 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 it hides the voice. And, Ben, I'm wondering, you know, how do you get that electronic voice into the mask? The light part I really got, um, I, I understand and I think is kind of cool, but I'm curious what you think about the voice piece. Yeah, I, I actually think both are really impressive problems. I think the voice is... Not so bad. I, th I think we've all experienced, you know, voice changers and all sorts of things like that, where you could have a, you know, have Sharon's voice change to this uh, kind of weird guy who she's pretending to be. Although you'd have to have a really good uh, foam or something in there to muffle out her original voice because the fabric probably isn't capable of attenuating the voice down enough to keep it from leaking out. But I also want to be really impressed by this fabric because not only is it, you know, we, it's interesting that the, the person she's emulating is wearing a hat. And I think that's actually a critical thing because I think it would be very tough to do this with somebody with their hair out, for example, because it would be very difficult to get the perspective right with like a sheet of uh, bendable uh, screen uh, to do hair and have it work from every angle because the perspective would get screwed up. So I like that they kind of address that by, by having this uh, uh, person she's pretending to be, you know, wearing a beanie and you don't, you kind of get around the hair problem. I love that because, you know, as we all know, Dan, from an animation point of view, hair and cloth are the hardest things to animate. Um, and it's been the hardest crack where water was the easiest Right. I'll just throw that out there as a random fact that people can look up. Well, I will say as our as our resident hat enthusiast, I can see where you'd be on board with this as well. Um, but the, the other thing here that I want to talk about really quickly is that mercury. She calls it a mercury vapor bomb that essentially dis blows up and dissolves one of the security guards. She says it's got mercury vapor and in, in quotes, among other things. This seems like the perfect way to dissolve and kill somebody. Uh, actually, reverse that kill and then dissolve them uh, really quickly. What are your thoughts on this, Dennis? Well, I'm a little concerned because I have to admit I am not a mercury expert. I know that surprises everyone out there who assume I'm an expert on anything. I was thinking, why aren't you just using acid if you're dissolving someone? I know mercury can cause like real like damage and it's not great to have or drink, 
but I never thought of mercury as corrosive and melting you. Um, ben, what do, what do you think of this mercury thing? I, I, I really feel the other part is what's melting them. Yeah, I think, I think the amongst other things, I think it's the other <laughs> things that are the key here. Uh, mercury is, can be very damaging to things like aluminum. So, you know, maybe it's, you know, melting the car after it melts the guy. But, uh, you know, I think, I think there's got to be some sort of, you know, biologic organic acid in there that's doing the actual melting of the person because uh, mercury just kind of poisons you. It doesn't really melt you. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Dan, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the melting the body and getting rid of it. If you recall, in our episode on Logan's Run, we discussed the um, machines that seem to, you know, clean up the messes by totally dissolving people rapidly and rapidly dissolving bodies. I don't know. It seems to keep coming up in our episode. That's making me a little worried. No, you're right, Denon. I think we probably do talk about it too much or just enough. The world is very crazy, and God knows when you're going to need any of these types of technologies. Hopefully never. Um, but, you know, in case we've uh, missed anything, we got our errors, additions, and omissions section. This is things we wanted to talk about, but we didn't quite get to. Uh, Denon, did you have anything about Falcon and Winter Soldier that you wanted to discuss? Well, I do want to point out, we, we alluded to it, but I think it's good that we skipped it in the main part because I don't know why the shield occasionally sticks in stuff. That really must be the AI part of the shield. It's like, ah, I'm not going to bounce this time. I'm going to stick. That, that's my biggest error in addition. I just, like, I just stay up late at night wondering that. Why? Why does it stick now? I mean, it's a good question. Definitely for sure. I have no answers for that. Um, but what about you, Ben? Did you have anything that you wanted to talk about for the show? I'm going to get a little cranky here and say, you know, they're not making the super soldiers like they used to. We see these uh, flag smashers get killed in a car bomb by uh, Zemo's uh, butler. And I think, you know, how is it that super soldiers, modern day super soldiers can't survive a car bomb, but Steve Rogers has no problem surviving the like hydrogen bomb explosion of when Thor hit the shield with Mjolnir. It just doesn't make sense that Cap was fine through that, but you know, these guys can't survive a car bomb. You know, Ben, I will always encourage you to be a cranky old man. Uh, you know, you got to take the mantle from me every now and again because I'm going to do the exact opposite, and I'm going to be the I'm going to be the the cheerful cheerleader of the of this section because we've had a great comment on our Wandavision episode, another Marvel series, and a student. Her name is Isabel uh, Casalamir. Oh, I'm getting that right. She is citing our Wandavision episode, uh, which is available on our YouTube page. Any comments? We're going to talk about them in the show, by the way. So she left a comment. And she's going to cite us in her research paper. And I asked her to keep us updated. I'm going to assume that she's going to get an A on the show because we really gave her a lot of information. Uh, we may actually change the way physics is taught in her school. I will keep you guys updated on that. But if you want to get in touch with us, you can do several different things. You can find the show on Twitter. It's at FGGBTPod. We're on Facebook at FGGBT. But we have a new email address. It is questions at FGGBT.com. If you've got questions, comments, comments, or general correspondence, that's the place to get in touch, and hopefully we will feature your emails on future episodes, but you can get in touch with us individually. Denon, where can people find you? Well, Dan, people can find me on Twitter and Instagram. They just have to switch my name. It's at Denon Michael, and if they want to find me on Facebook, that's easy, too. You just stick a prof in there. It's at Prof Denon Michael. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at bseepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And you can find me on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn, and on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. 
Always remember, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast channel. And while you're there listening, take that second to rate and review. If you're watching on YouTube, we'd love to hear your thoughts in the comment section down below. Please like and subscribe and ring that bell to find out when our next episode posts. And finally, don't forget this show contains powerful scientific information that can be misused by people bent on world domination. So be careful with it. Remember, you want to be a superhero, not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, ftriplegbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there ftriplegbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version, depending on what you like. We got it for you, and if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.